go to the U.S. Federal Code, Title 47, Telecommunications, then to Chapter 5, Wire or Radio Communication, then to Subchapter 2, Common Carriers, and then Part 1, Common Carrier Regulation, and then keep reading a little bit further, you will come to Section 230, Protection for Private Blocking and Screening of Offensive Material. For more than 20 years, since the birth of the Internet age as we know it, Section 230 has provided websites with immunity from liability for what their users post. Here's the actual language. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Now, the Electronic Frontier Foundation describes the importance of Section 230 this way. This legal and policy framework has allowed for YouTube users to upload their own videos, Amazon and Yelp to offer countless user reviews, Craigslist to host classified ads, and Facebook and Twitter to offer social networking to hundreds of millions of Internet users. Given the sheer size of user-generated websites, it would be infeasible for online intermediaries to prevent objectionable content from cropping up on their site. In short, Section 230 is perhaps the most influential law to protect the kind of innovation that has allowed the Internet to thrive since 1996. Yet Section 230 is under fire these days from the left and the right, who think those 26 words are insufficient for an age of tech titans and where we live much of our lives online. To discuss the present and future of Section 230, our guest today is Jeff Kossoff, an assistant professor of cybersecurity law at the U.S. Naval Academy Cyber Science Department. Before becoming a lawyer, he was a technology and political journalist for The Oregonian and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in National Reporting. He's also the author of the new book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. What would the Internet look like without Section 230? We know what it looks like with Section 230. It's the Internet. How about without it? What would change? So it's hard to know for sure, but I think the Internet would look a lot more like a newspaper or a television station in that it would be much more one way. So people would be receiving information, but they might not be sharing information with one another and providing their own information because websites and platforms would be face tremendous liability without Section 230. So that means, well, no, certainly no Facebook or Twitter. I mean, no social media as we know. You would, you right. So you, so you, right. You so you could have news organizations like CNN. They could, they, they could still exist. They would be posting stories and video. Um, you could access things like Netflix over the internet. But, the, but basically, all of social media seems like that that would be gone. At least in its current form. So we don't know for sure because since 1996, we've had Section 230. So we don't know quite how the courts would interpret the existing First Amendment protections, which are much weaker. Uh, but it would be – social media would at least be much more limited. Uh, and not just social media, but other sorts of sites that rely on user content such as Yelp. Um, if under the First Amendment rules, basically the most protection that a website could receive is uh, they'd be protected until they receive knowledge of content that might be defamatory. So let's say you're a business, you're not happy with a one-star Yelp review, you send a notice to Yelp saying this is defamatory. Uh, without Section 230, Yelp would then be on notice and face the choice of either having to take down the review immediately or 
defend the accuracy of the review, which I don't think they would want to do on such a large scale. So what you would have is Yelp being basically filled with five-star reviews, and Yelp then wouldn't be as useful for consumers anymore. So you could have a a situation where it's it's sort of heavily moderated. Might some companies just go the other direction and say, it's a free-for-all, we don't know, you know, we're just this neutral forum, people can post things. Is is that a possibility? That actually is. And the whole reason for Section 230 is that there was this rule saying that distributors of content, so such as bookstores and newsstands, are only liable for third-party content if they knew or should have known that it was illegal. So what we had in the early 90s was we had these services like CompuServe and Prodigy and other companies. My students have no idea what I'm talking about when I tell them. Uh, And uh, CompuServe's business model was we're not going to moderate any third-party content. Uh, Prodigy wanted to distinguish itself and be a family-friendly service, so it had moderators and content policies. Um, Both CompuServe and Prodigy are sued for defamation based on third-party content. CompuServe's case gets dismissed because what the court says is, CompuServe, you're like a bookstore, and you had no reason to know that it was illegal or defamatory, so we're going to dismiss the case. But Prodigy was held to be just like a newspaper as a publisher of the content. So Prodigy did not receive this protection. So as of this ruling in 1995, the First Amendment incentives were to not do any moderation because the online services feared that if they started to moderate, then they would face this tremendous amount of liability. And that's really what prompted Section 230 to be passed. Right. So so the so the legislative intent of Section 230, what can we say with some sort of authority about that? So based on the limited legislative history, the floor debates, uh, but also my interviews with uh, both Chris Cox and Ron Wyden, who were in the, uh, the U.S. House at the time, as well as people who were from industry and civil liberties groups who worked on the bill, there were really two goals. The first was to encourage this moderation, to basically say we're, we'd rather have companies and their users determine what the rules of the roads are, are rather than the government. And the second, so there, it's really a dual goal bill, the second is to promote innovation. And uh, that's where you had Chris Cox, who was a moderate Republican, went on to chair the SEC under uh, George W. Bush, and Ron Wyden, who's a fairly liberal uh, slash somewhat libertarian Democrat from Portland, uh, who both wanted to promote the growth of the tech industry. They both have tech companies in their districts. And they say, you know, we we recognize there's this real potential here for jobs and economic prosperity, and we don't want to over-regulate it. So it was really these two goals that they were looking at when they, um, when they wrote and proposed Section 230. So it's been important. Would you say it's go- it goes too far to say that it was a it was a key sort of element in creating the internet and these and these companies, all these companies, not just sort of the big tech companies, but but sort of the internet writ large today. Absolutely, the current structure of the internet and the current business model of many of not just the large platforms, but even smaller platforms that rely on user generated content. It would look very different without Section 230. um, I I can't think of any other single law that has had more impact on the Internet as we know it today. Yet there are a lot of critics out there and they think it's it's failing or it's insufficient or was okay for a previous time when it was a lot different. These companies were smaller uh, than it is today. And uh, some people think companies aren't moderating enough of that content. Then you have folks who think 
It's too much moderation. Let me read you something from uh, the historian uh, Neil Ferguson. I think he wrote this in the Wall Street Journal. Dominance of online advertising by Alphabet and Facebook, coupled with immunity from civil liability under legislation dating back to the 1990s, has created an extraordinary state of affairs. The biggest content publishers in history are regulated as if they were mere technology startups. They are a new hierarchy extracting rent from the network. Uh, so he, he uh, just from his other writings, I know that Ferguson would like to get rid of 230. Uh, he thinks that these companies uh, are, are now big. Uh, they're not, uh, they're not, and they're not operating as sort of neutral platforms. And that to get this sort of immunity that's been given to them by Section 230, that these companies, that the bargain is these companies are going to be neutral. They are not going to favor any content, and now they are favoring content. So that's his perspective. And then you have, I think, mostly folks on the left who think none of these companies are doing enough. They're not stopping Russian election interfering. They're allowing uh, you know, uh, white supremacy to rise. They're allowing deep fakes of Democratic politicians to spread, and they're not doing too much. So there's, uh, so there's sort of two... Two criticisms. What do you what do you make of each side? So yeah, there's a whole lot going on here, um, <laughs> and I think what's overarching all of this is that people are frustrated with the largest platforms, and I understand that, and I agree with a lot of that criticism. Uh, how much of that criticism is linked to Section 230 is a different question. So I'll start with what is linked to Section 230, and that is that there are some cases where both large and small platforms have not thoughtfully moderated. And also have not been transparent about what they're doing for moderation. So there are a number of cases that I read about in the book that are really hard cases where people have been wronged. And the platform has not had entirely clean hands. And yet Section 230, by its terms and how it's interpreted, protects them. I think that's the strongest criticism of Section 230. Uh, What's not a strong criticism of Section 230 is that the platforms are not neutral. Um, I've spent two years looking at the history of Section 230, and they were never supposed to be neutral. The whole point of Section 230 is that they're, that Congress didn't want them to have this hands-off approach. Um, now, it really depends but they, on... But, but politically, they wanted to, I suppose, moderate harmful content, but did they anticipate... Um, that it would be, anticipate a company getting big, being influential, and then and then suppressing one political view or another. Was that sort of the, so the objectionable content? Was it just thought to be, you know, illegal activity and pornography or violent activity or advocacy, or do they assume that there might be? So there's a second in, – in addition to the 26 words, which are really what are mostly interpreted, uh, se- Section 230 has a second section called C2, which states, in addition to this immunity, you're also not going to be held liable for good faith efforts to restrict or block access to lewd, lascivious, and they list a few others, or other objectionable content. Uh, now – True. At the time, the big concern was children's access to online legal but pornography, right. um, which is kind of quaint when you think about the problems that we face right now. Um, so there, there, I'm not aware of any discussion about any concerns of specific political suppression. And in fact, one of the purposes of Section 230 is to foster political discourse. So um, that that's very true. At least the actual real controversies that I've seen in the news have been if someone violates 
a policy of a platform that might be that the platform might classify as hate speech, um, but then someone else might classify that as legitimate political discourse. That's where I, I, I'm not aware. I mean, it, it might be there, other than a knitting site that uh, recently announced its policy. I'm, I'm not aware of this sort of flood of the large platforms having these policies saying we will only have this political viewpoint. They do have these. So the critics say that's what they're de facto doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, th- I think the issue though is it shows how difficult moderation is because if they took an entirely hands-off approach, I don't know. I, I think there would even be more criticism from people saying, "Why are you leaving that online?" And there are a few platforms, some of the smaller platforms, that do leave pretty much everything up. Um, do we want the internet to look like that? I, I, I have a five-year-old daughter. I would never if that's what the internet looked like she's going to be um using books and uh pens and papers for the rest of her life uh, <laughs> yeah exactly on, on ebay yeah buy those uh i i, I think i so um i want to sort of go through some of the uh, uh myths and just sort of just clarify what we were just talking about because i see this a lot uh online and it's the idea that uh what section 230 did was grant special immunity to internet platforms, but only on the condition that they were politically neutral. That that is that sort of the grand bargain. It does not sound like that was the grand bargain. I, I mean, I, I've all, all I can say is I've spoken with both former member or both former members of the House now, Senator Wyden and former Congressman Cox, who wrote the bill, and they say that's not true. Uh, Chris Cox uh, has recently wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed on the topic, and I also spoke with lobbyists from who were on the civil liberty side and the tech company side at the time who worked with Cox and Wyden, they also told me that's not true. So whether what they're, I think what they might be trying to say is that Section 230 was supposed to foster political discourse, which is true. Um, but like I, there's a lot of political discourse. There is. On the there is. I, 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 <laughs> I seem to open my email and always get the political discourse, which I might not want to get. But uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what about the special immunity part of that? Is there something special that these companies were given that other companies were not given? So they're, and, and in the book, you talk about internet exceptionalism yeah. too. So was the immunity special? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, I mean, this is something I, I think that most industries would love to have. Uh, obviously, it's, I think the unique part about this, and I, this is where I'm definitely not an absolutist on Section 230 issues. I'm not... I don't say it's perfect. I don't. I, I'm open to some thoughtful changes, um, but when I hear people say it's just uh, so, so some of the defenders say it's not a benefit for the companies, and I think that's nonsense. Of course, it's a benefit for the companies. Uh, they couldn't exist in their current forms without it. But it's also a benefit for society in the sense that it provides these extraordinary free speech abilities. Now, that's also can be a negative for society as well, depending on what that speech is. But it's not. I, I think we have to look at section. 230 much more holistically and not just say, well, it's a benefit for the companies. Yeah, that's and, true. And and not just, I mean, not just Google and Facebook, but for any company that's going to really operate Absolutely. online. So it's not just like it was carved out and they knew in advance that these companies were going to get big or something, something that certainly didn't even exist. But it's really for anybody, even traditional sort of media companies, for instance, or, or anybody. It is. And, you're start, and you see some of sort of the midsize platforms 
that really benefit from Section 230. I frankly think, at least from looking at how they handle user content, they're actually among the most thoughtful platforms in terms of how they develop their policies and really how they listen to their users, which is really what Section 230 is designed to encourage. Right. Um, uh, I, I, whenever I, uh, I'll tweet about uh, Section 230, this will come up and they'll say, look, these companies have a big choice to make. They can either be neutral platforms, right, or they can be publishers. So platform or publisher, that is the binary choice that they need to make. Um, it's not 1996 anymore, so they need to make – I think Neil Ferguson also makes that either be a, either be a, a publisher and you're going to edit content and have a point of view or be a neutral platform. Uh, you, they need to choose. Um, is, does that – is that pulled out of the law in any way? No. I, I don't know what they're talking about with saying that you – because – and I, I always hesitate to even respond to this because I'm not quite sure what their parameters are for publisher or platform. So are they saying you don't do any moderation at all? Free for all. I, I mean, I, I seriously would not want to be on the internet at all if that was the case because the uh, – and I, I encourage everyone, last week The Verge ran an article by Casey Newton about the life of uh, social media moderators and a lot of it was about labor issues. But part of it was about the content that they get at this barrage, rapid pace, the worst elements of humanity possible. And so I, I don't know if you're That saying, would be all of us. Yeah. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. So I, I, so, I mean, I really don't know what, where they're drawing the line between platforms or publishers. All I can say is that Congress, at least at the time, did not intend that distinction. Whether they want to make that dis- distinction in the future is going to be a choice, a policy choice for Congress. Right. And, and you said you're not an absolutist and you're also – you're not someone who says that, you know, these, these 26 words, they came from the burning bush. They cannot be changed. They're perfect. You're not saying any of that. So what are, so what are these companies doing wrong? Yeah, so I mean I as an example there was a Congress uh, about a year and a half ago amended section 230 to create an exemption for sex trafficking because there were a number of cases where uh, people were being trafficked. Minors were being sold for sex on a website called Backpage. Uh, I testified in the House Judiciary Committee for a limited exception based on intentionally facilitating sex trafficking. The end result was not nearly <laughs> as um, effective as I thought it would be. It sweeps in more behavior and it caused a chilling effect. So, But I mean, I'm open to those sorts of changes. I think in terms of what they're doing wrong, I think the biggest problem is they lack transparency. They're starting to change, um, and I think it's really the larger platforms in particular. But I mean, I'm I'm at the enabler. people don't understand why things happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, I I only, I only deal with Section 230 for part of my job. I do a lot of cybersecurity, national security work, given where I work, and so I deal with a lot of the intelligence agencies and. Um, the large platforms operate at the same level of secrecy that the intelligence agencies operate at, and they shouldn't do that because they're given. I mean, I mean, they they they, they, they serve. I think there's arrogance. They operate like private startups, even when they're massive companies that have a greater market cap than the automakers. Um, and so, I think they they need. I, I can't stress enough that for Section 230 to survive, the platforms need to be much better at explaining precisely how they do things. They all post policies, but you don't really know how they're implementing the policies and what goes on in the decision-making process. They've gotten better, um, and especially the larger ones have at least started recognized this in the past year or two, but it might be too late. So that's one issue. And then there also are some really bad-acting platforms that – 
range from laziness to malicious. And they're the minority, but I think they make it very difficult to justify having Section 230. Uh, and they operate really on the edges of Section 230 and really push the limits. Like, like um, so there, there was a case um, in the uh, Second Circuit that was just decided a few weeks ago where uh, there was a man who had had, who had, um, had a breakup and his ex decided to get revenge on him by going on to Grindr and posting pictures uh, and his work and home address, uh, basically saying, inviting strangers to come to his home and work demanding sex. And uh, he received hundreds of people coming to his home and work very aggressively. And he repeatedly tried to get Grindr to stop this. There were a few different apps. The other apps did stop it. But I mean, based at least on the court record, Grindr did not do nearly enough uh, to stop this. And I mean, he he very well could have been killed. Uh, Thankfully, he wasn't. But he sued and the Second Circuit affirmed the dismissal under Section 230 saying this was user content. Those kind of cases make it really hard to defend Section 230. Sure. And, and again, um, in the in the book, and a, and a good chunk of the book is going through what are actually some really interesting, really some of the most interesting court cases I've read uh, showing how this law has sort of evolved. And you and, and throughout its history, you if you want to find compelling victims, there's a lot of yeah. compelling victims who have suffered harms and yet – this immunity has has withstood really those you know those very difficult stories and I guess edge cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned transparency. Does there also need to be sort of you know an appeal mechanism that pe- that that these sort of edicts aren't, aren't handed down and you're out or your content's off and that's it. I think so, and there, and that's starting to be developed, and it really varies by platform. I think there's a lot there are a lot of proposals out there to create different levels of appeals, both for the policies as well as the actual moderation decisions. Uh, the difficulty in this is that there's just so much content out there that coming up with a way to have the appeals be effective is difficult. But yeah, I, th- I think absolutely there have to be more than one level of review. Though, though I wonder still if the end result is still certain content or people get booted, if the criticism just is still not going to be there. Great, you were transparent. Great, we appealed. Well, we lost the appeal. Uh, you're still biased platforms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I think that you're never going to make moderation decisions that satisfy everyone. I mean, when you look at even some of these discussions about the political neutrality issues. The, well, let, let me get into that real fast then. The, uh, because usually the, the criticism is not to get rid of 230, but to modify and put mm-hmm. some sort of limitation. And Senator Josh Hawley, Missouri, he has this idea in which in order to get for big platforms, big companies to, to get that 230 immunity, uh, I think the FTC would have to mm-hmm. certify in some fashion that they are indeed politically neutral. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll first just give the caveat. I'm only speaking on my own behalf, not the Naval Academy mm-hmm. or DOD. Um, I I actually probably, more than a lot of people, I understand where the concern for potential abuse is because we have platforms with billions of users. And if those platforms decide we don't like this person and make the unilateral decision to block them, I i mean, I personally think that that, that is a very scary scenario. I'm not aware of anything like that happening for pure political affiliation. There's things like making judgment about hate speech and uh, or uh, other sorts of content that the platforms determine they don't want 
on their services. Um, so I, I get the concerns. I've not seen any evidence uh, showing that this is a systematic problem. Um, my concern about a, any such proposal for having the FTC judge a platform's political neutrality is I'm, I'm just not sure. And I, I've worked with a lot of FTC staffers, and they're brilliant people on things like privacy and security issues. Um, I'm not sure how they make these determinations about political neutrality. And you effectively could have two commissioners blocking a site from receiving Section 230 immunity uh, if they don't agree that there's political neutrality. So I think the implementation, I mean, I, I don't know why it would be the FTC doing this, but I also, I, I worry anytime where you have a political political appointees making these sorts of judgments about, about the platform. We'll see how the algorithms do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so let's, let's just, let's say Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg says, you know what? I don't like the way, the direction the country is going. Facebook is going to become an all woke all hashtag resistance platform. We're not allowing any any Trump uh, material on Facebook. It's all none of that. Sorry, Republicans. Uh, that's what we're going to do with Facebook. What should happen to Facebook? Anything, or is that that's Facebook's decision? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that because which is kind of which is kind of you mentioned earlier, where a small knitting website is basically done, which is said we're not going to allow any sort of I think pro Trump material on our on our website. If, if Facebook did that, is that they should find that. So, no, I mean, I, I think there are a few different outcomes. I mean, one, one would be the business outcome. I, I think that would... Horrific. Yeah, yeah, because you, you'd have a large component of the country being excluded. And I think a knitting site might be able to do that. Facebook, that, yes, theoretically, they can make that decision. I think it would destroy their business. Uh, I think a lot of concerns that are coming up, and these are valid concerns, but it would be... Uh, consumer protection antitrust type issue as well. I mean, about the company in general, not just about the user content issues, more than just a Section 230 issue. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's why I say I more than most people who have been sort of commenting on these tech policy issues with 230. I, I mean, when you have really large companies, yeah, of course, it's it's concerning. It's just what what is the mechanism to address it? Is it Section 230 or is it uh, Chris Cox, for example, proposed having um, the platforms publicly post their moderation policies and then facing sort of regulatory actions if they don't uh, comply with their moderation policies? Um, do you think demonetizing a, uh, a YouTube channel, uh, that's – is that – is that an acceptable form of content moderation since it's kind of halfway? You're not really kicking somebody off, but it's – I think a lot of the concern is it can't be like an either-or deal. There has to be something in between, whether you make it more difficult to share that content or the person can't make money off that content. Are these sort of in-between uh, in, in responses do you think those are good ideas? Or? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think it really depends on what the actual content at issue is. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think all the options should definitely be on the table. And I, I do think there needs to be much more user input into these decisions because a lot of times what you see is it's this kind of black box both on the policy side and the implementation side. And I really don't think that we can have it be like that any, anymore. So beyond having these companies do something different, are there – 
have you have you written a revised two thirty, um, you know, draft of that somewhere in a in a in a, in a laptop computer somewhere? Like you would, uh, is there something you would change or amend or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a few different ways to go about it. That uh, and I think everyone would be angry at me for proposing some of these things. But uh, one and they're kind of geeky technical changes. But one of the issues is I talked about some the handful of platforms and I write about some of them in the book that actually end up not getting Section 230 immunity because they're found to have actually uh, participated in the creation of the content because 230 only covers third-party created content. Um, There are some cases where the platform may have actually played a role in developing the content, a very small number. Um, But the problem is that Section 230 is often the issue is decided at a very early stage before discovery. So the plaintiff doesn't have the opportunity to to gather the evidence that the platform contributed to the content. So what I would be open to seeing is finding a thoughtful way in cases where the judge receive sufficient indication that that the platform may have contributed to the content to allow discovery before ruling on the Section 230 motion just on the issue of whether the platform create, contributed to the creation of the content. Again, it's a technical change, but I think that would be one area. Another area would be um, right now Section 230 has always had an exception for federal criminal law enforcement. Um, this, unfortunately, for a lot of online issues, state attorneys general have been much m- more in the forefront of enforcement, uh, but state l- criminal law is not uh, exempt from Section 230. I would be open to an exemption which says if there's a state criminal law that falls within the contours of a federal criminal law, so if a state couldn't pass some crazy off-the-wall law but something that's within federal confines um, – that could be enforced by the state attorneys general, um, but we'd have to look at exactly how we would tailor that exception. And ultimately, do you think there will be uh, – there might be some changes in company behavior, but do you think there will actually be um, material changes in this in this law? I mean, are, I, so, I, again, you, you have this book out for a couple of months, and again – uh, it may seem like this is a it's, a it's a weird book about a about 26 words in the federal code, but it is really I tell you it is really fantastic. I mean, it's really one Thank great you. chapter after another. Fantastically, really things are explained very easily, super understandable. This is a great moment to have this book out, and people must be talking to you. Imagine people from Capitol Hill are talking to you. Do you think changes actually get made in this? I don't know. I I used to be a journalist in D.C. and I was terrible at predicting the outcome of political issues because usually laws end up getting added into an omnibus appropriations bill right before Christmas break. Um, so it's hard to tell. I mean, entropy is a very powerful force in in Washington D.C. Um, on one hand, you have Nancy Pelosi and Ted Cruz agreeing on something, which is something that doesn't happen all that often. They both criticize Section 230, but they're criticizing it for very different reasons. Right. And so I don't know if so, – so I don't know if repealing Section 230 would achieve both of the ends that they're looking for. So I, I'm, I'm really not sure. I will say, I mean, there's never been a time when Section 230 has been under the microscope more than it is right now. My guest today has been Jeff Kossoff. He's author of the new book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming. Thanks so much.